Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and happy almost end of 2012. Can you believe it? It's almost the end of the year. But before we ring in 2013, we wanted to pause a bit and bring you a sort of year in review. And we don't mean a year in review that covers the big, huge stories of 2012. Instead, we want to bring you stories that are, you might say, quintessentially Metro Connection. Stories that take you on unexpected adventures across the region. When the poop hits the fan, the adrenaline flows. And introduce you to some particularly intriguing characters. Yeah, (laughs) I'm known as the cat lady. First, though, we'll head to Clark County, Virginia. Just turned right onto Cool Spring Road, and we are surrounded by corn. (laughs) Right in the shadow of the Blue Ridge Mountains, lots and lots of corn on the left side of the road, on the right side of the road, to a 1,200-acre Trappist monastery. Wow, this place, like, goes on forever. Known as Holy Cross Abbey. Okay. Here we are. Holy Cross was founded in 1950 in an elegant 18th century house. Since then, Trappist monks have lived in the house and the attached dormitory in accordance with the rule of St. Benedict, a religious tradition established in the 7th century, living quiet lives of renunciation, simplicity, and contemplation. The monastery grew rapidly in its first 20 years, and at its height, it was home to 60 monks. We're down to about 13 now, I think. So there's been quite an attrition. And as Brother Barnabas Brownsey points out, it isn't just the number of monks that's changed over the past 62 years. It's the age. The eldest monk, Brother Edward, is in his early 90s. Father Joseph, the youngest, is 55. So Brother Barnabas... I'm 78 years old. ...is just a little bit older than the average. And like several of his fellow monks, he admits he isn't in the best of health. He actually ran the monastery's fruitcake bakery for 15 years. It produces like 15,000 cakes annually. But then uh, one year, my understudy enrolled in the seminary, so he was not available for the fruitcake season. And at the end of the season, I was busted. I was burned out. Holy Cross's abbot, Father Robert, took note of the situation and called Barnabas into his office, where he promptly took him off fruitcake duty. I said, Father, if I was able, I'd jump across the desk and kiss you. (laughs) (laughs) So he was relieved, and uh, so was I. We're laughing here, sure, but here's the thing. Holy Cross's monks are getting older, and so are the men who've been joining the order. Most have already had another whole career, if not two or three. I mean, take Brother Barnabas. He'd been an engineer, an executive, and an English teacher, and had been married with kids. Brother Efren Sosa worked at a university in New York City, got licensed as a funeral director, and spent 20 years as a Capuchin Franciscan friar. At age 53, I decided, I want to do this. And so I came here. And they accepted me. These days, Brother Efren is the Abbey's vocation director and novice director. So he's in charge of recruiting new men and guiding beginning monks. Traditionally, is the vocation director also the novice? No, no, it's usually separate. But in our case, because we're so small right now, we multitask here. That's her middle names. (laughs) (laughs) Efren multitask Sosa. Okay, once again, we laugh. And to be honest, all this laughing did kind of surprise me in a place devoted to a centuries-long tradition of quiet contemplation. But the thing is, while Brother Efren may hold two jobs, his hands aren't necessarily all that full. Are there any novices now? 
No, we don't have any. We have a few people that are interested. In fact, at the end of this month, we have two people that will be coming to investigate the life. Now, whether they'll choose to stay is anyone's guess. The most recent observer at Holy Cross to become a postulant, then a novice, then to take solemn vows, was Brother Efren himself. And I've been a monk here now for seven years. But while Holy Cross has a clear social problem, fewer potential monks and older current monks, the traditionally self-supporting abbey also has its share of financial issues. Because, let's face it, the market for fruitcake isn't exactly what it used to be. And since the monks are too old to run their decades-old beef cattle operation, they've been leasing their 800 acres of cow pasture and feed corn land at less than market rate. The monks also have a retreat house for visitors. That's where I stay during my visit. But the house barely brings in enough money to cover its own costs. And yet, when I ask Brother Efren and Brother Barnabas about all of this, they have the same basic response. This is God's work. That's in God's hands. This is not ours. If God wants us to be here... If God wants this monastery to be here... We'll be here. It will be here. If he doesn't, we'll go somewhere else. His will always comes through. God's will will be what will be, and it's up to us to accept it. But meanwhile, adds Brother Barnabas... We have to do the best we can with what we have. That's as simple as that. Which is why, in 2007, Holy Cross embarked on a five-year plan to make the monastery more sustainable. How are you? Good. Is that too long of a walk? That was lovely. Yeah. Lovely. And as the five years come to a close, the guy heading up the sustainability efforts is Chief Sustainability Officer Ed Leonard. So, what is this structure in which we are standing? This is our funeral chapel, but I think we need to call it something else. I'm not sure chapel is really the right word. Commemoration building. Whatever the term, the wood building is about the size of your average barn with open walls, kind of like a picnic shelter at a park. Only this one has a bell, a steeple, and a composting toilet. It's part of the new Cool Spring Natural Cemetery, a green burial ground for people of all faiths. Is there, is there like a wooden casket? Is there no casket? If you'd like a wooden casket, that's perfectly fine, but you can also be buried in just a shroud. You know, what could be more green than laying a body in the ground and just letting the ground do what it's done for millions of years? But the Green Cemetery isn't the only way Holy Cross hopes to become more sustainable. It's placed 200 acres of land in a conservation easement, and it's transformed more than 100 acres of cattle pasture along the river into cropland. Cattle are very tough on the land, and the cattle would use the river to drink from. And of course, when the cattle would go into the river, they would do the things cattle do in rivers, and and that would all go to the Chesapeake Bay. The Abbey is cost-sharing the land with nearby great country farms, whose workers have spent months planting a bevy of fruits and vegetables at Holy Cross, everything from tomatoes, zucchini, and squash. Here to our left, we have uh, an asparagus patch. To cucumbers, blueberries, and cantaloupe, which, incidentally, fresh cantaloupe, may very well be the most succulent cantaloupe I've ever tasted. I even have napkins. I don't need a napkin. I need a napkin. (laughs) Ed Leonard says he's confident these initiatives will get Holy Cross Abbey back on firm financial footing. And when I ask Brother Efren and Brother Barnabas how they feel... I'm curious to get your thoughts about that. Lessening the number of cattle, making more farming, the cemetery, the open-air chapel. What are your thoughts on all of these projects? They both second Ed's motion. It's all exciting for us because it's, it's for our future. We need something to sustain us in the future. I think we're going to have sufficient revenue to to continue to go on. But, Brother Barnabas hastens to add, much still depends 
on God's will. And now all we have to do is open uh, that God will choose younger men, by younger, you know, 40s, 50s, and that they will come, they will hear the call and come. To see photos of Holy Cross Abbey, including the Green Cemetery, the farm, the 18th century house, the fruitcake bakery, even some chocolate-covered fruitcake, which the monks call fratters or fratters, visit our website, metroconnection.org. As Brother Barnabas and the other Holy Cross monks wait for more men to hear the call, They're also taking steps to ensure the monastery's future in more sustainable ways. They're hoping to rely less on their fruitcake bakery and beef cattle operation and more on one of Holy Cross's greatest natural resources. The land. 1,200 acres of land, to be precise. And this Holy Cross resident? I am Joseph Ventu. Or Brother Joseph. I'm 75 years old. Originally, I'm from Vietnam. Go so far as to compare that land to gold. Just like a Middle East, they have oil that is gold for them. But the key, he says, is using the Abbey's gold appropriately, which is why he's so excited about two brand new efforts here at Holy Cross. First, a green cemetery, which doesn't do embalming or use non-biodegradable burial materials. And second, a fruit and vegetable farm run by the Abbey's Loudoun County neighbors. All right, so we're getting yellow, right? Yeah, I've never had a yellow zucchini. Just across the Blue Ridge Mountains. Look at this one. Great Country Farms. Oh, wow. That one got a little bit, this one got a little bit over. How big would you say that is? I don't even know. It's probably, it's pretty giant. Isn't that crazy? That would definitely be a lot of zucchini bread. (laughs) Kate Zershmead co-owns Great Country Farms with her husband, Mark. I'm part of the Zershmead family, and we have been farming in Loudoun for about 40 years and are starting here at the monastery in Clark and looking forward to a long relationship. And as it happens, that relationship came about in a most serendipitous way. One of our lifelong friends has been providing hospice care here to one of the older monks. And when she heard that the monks were looking to expand into growing crops and trying to have some sustainable use of their farm, said, hey, you know, you need to talk to the Zershmin family. They're right across the river. They're 10 minutes away. And Mark and Kate were the fourth family that we had spoken to about this idea. Ed Leonard is the chief sustainability officer at Holy Cross Abbey. We were looking in Maryland. We were looking in Pennsylvania. You're looking all over the place, and it was so incredible that Mark and Kate were in our backyard, and we didn't know it. What's also incredible is that Mark and Kate had actually been seeking more land at the time. And what's more, Ed says? They were compatible with all the values the monks had. They understand the value of treating this land gently. Now, while the fruits and veggies grown here aren't certified organic, Kate says Great Country Farms does apply more sustainable practices here, like using fish emulsion fertilizer instead of, you know, chemical fertilizers. Growing plants on plastic. So we use a suppression technique rather than spraying an herbicide every week on all of the fields. And using pesticides on an as-needed basis. Rather than every Monday you nuke the squash and every Tuesday you nuke the orchard and things like that. While Holy Cross Abbey has been providing the land, Great Country Farms has been providing the labor and infrastructure. So things like putting up deer fencing, tilling the land, and doing all the planting and 
harvesting. But instead of Holy Cross getting a flat rental fee, it gets a percentage of Great Country Farms' revenue. Though, as Ed Leonard points out, there is no annual contract. And so we're doing cost sharing with the Zurchmeads. For instance, these 2,000 apple trees that they planted on Good Friday, we're splitting the cost of that. We don't think that they should have to financially bear the entire burden and risk. So with an annual contract, um, you know, that was just too much to ask. And though the partnership is no more than a few months old, Ed says it's looking more and more like the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Kate Zurchmead agrees. You know, we would love to be in it for the long haul. And to me, if somebody says plant apple trees, which have a, you know, 20-year harvest lifespan, um, that bodes well for for a long-term relationship. Great Country Farms started planting on this mile-and-a-half stretch beside the Shenandoah River in March. And because this land is so loamy and rich, while you usually wouldn't harvest something like squash until July... We started the first week of June this year. ...which has been a pleasant, if profuse, surprise for Great Country Farms' 2,000-some CSA customers. These community-supported agriculture members order produce preseason and then get 20 deliveries between June and October. We've been inundating people with squash this year because they're just producing like crazy. And so one of our members has actually started a um, 104 days of squash challenge. He's like taken on a blog where he's going to post up a new squash recipe for 104 days just to deal with the volume that's coming. (laughs) But the CSA folks aren't the only ones who get to partake in that volume. Do you see any plans of providing food to the monastery? Well, right now we do a regular stop by at the monastery for the monks themselves. Who, by the way, are all vegetarian. So last week we dropped off some apples and apricots and squash, and I think they're all enjoying having some fresh produce from their own land. And in the case of Brother Joseph, anyway, Kate's definitely right. He's been enjoying a lot more produce since becoming a monk nine years ago. And now, bonus, it'll be local. So you are 75? Oh, yes, I am. You don't look like you're 75. You know what? Because I eat bean. (laughs) (laughs) Bean is my favorite. (laughs) Before I enter here, I don't know that that food well. (laughs) It's just a beefsteak or some other one, McDonald's, something like that. doesn't have bean at all. But over here, I like it. That's why I feel young. Of course, the monastery and its monks aren't actually getting any younger. So Brother Joseph hopes the farm at Holy Cross will help his beloved home live on, both by raising revenue and by making the abbey more appealing to a younger generation. This one no problem. We cannot sell by ourselves. In-house now, we are old, so we have to need outside come to help us, to make an environment for a newcomer to accept the life over here. For now, Brother Joseph says he's praying for a positive future, one that's bright, one that's beautiful, and, just like the land itself, one that brings forth a bounty of gold. To learn more about Holy Cross Abbey and Great Country Farms, including how you can become a member of their CSA, visit our website, metroconnection.org. a quick break, but when we get back, what's it like to work into the wee hours and beyond at a local hospital? I can't do night shift without coffee. (laughs) This is my second cup. We'll find out in a minute on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5.
WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. With the final days of 2012 upon us, this week we're bringing you our year in review as we look back at some of the stories that really stuck with us over the past 12 months. In just a bit, we'll spend some time on the overnight shift with doctors in a cardiac intensive care unit. And we'll head back to Virginia, where people are reviewing years of criminal convictions and tossing some of them out. First, though, we're going to look at an issue that affects many children here in D.C. HIV. More than 14,000 D.C. residents are living with HIV, and among those infected, perhaps none are as vulnerable as children and adolescents. Earlier this year, Kavitha Cardoza talked with two young people about living with the disease. And please note, their names have been changed to protect their privacy. Kendra's childhood was a blur of medical appointments. Getting your blood drawn, having to get shots, getting sick by a drop of a dime. Her mother didn't tell her what was wrong with her, but made her take 10 pills a day. It it was just hard because I would have to come in the house early and sit there and take medicine. And everyone else is outside playing. Like, why why me? (laughs) Kendra is 20 now, but she remembers when she was 13 and a doctor finally told her she was HIV positive. I got really scared and freaked out, and I was just crying hysterically. That was a wild day for me. Kendra had contracted the disease from her mother, who apologized and sat sobbing beside her. But even as Kendra found out she had something in common with her mother, she realized she was different from other family members who don't have HIV. I have a younger sibling and an older sibling who are perfectly normal. And I'm not saying I'm not normal. I'm saying I have to wake up and think about this every day. (laughs) To the outside world, Kendra is bubbly and outgoing. She doesn't tell anyone about her diagnosis and says her secret is like carrying a heavy weight in her heart. She hasn't even told her best friend. She would just look at me different and give me so much sympathy. And I wake up every day with a smile on my face because I'm waking up. When Kendra has an appointment, she just says she has to see her doctor and lets her friends assume what they want. They possibly think it's sickle cell or something like that because I always come back with Band-Aids on my arm so they're like, oh, she's getting blood drawn, it's sickle cell. (laughs) Kendra watches her friends go out on dates. Some even have children. She misses having a boyfriend. You just really want to get to know a guy. You're at the age where you want to have sex, but you're scared. She remembers sitting through her ninth grade health class, listening to her teacher talk about HIV. And all those anonymous questions asking for specific answers, no one knew they came from her. It helped me learn how you can be a normal person and no one can ever know. So I thank God for that, that I still look normal. <laughs> you look it. really stylish. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. I do this to encourage myself. I try to 
make at least the outside appearance look nice, even if I'm not having a wonderful day. Kendra says the one place she can be herself is at the hospital. In the doctor's office? Yes. <laughs> yes, because everybody who knows me here knows that I have a problem. I feel really free and open and can just talk. Kendra has a full-time job and is also a full-time student. She says she tries hard to remember all the blessings in her life, but there are times, like one day recently, when she feels God has forgotten her. I was in so much pain and I was so tired. And I just thought, like, when will it be over? That, that was the day I thought about death a lot. She's anxious about whether she might become like her mother, who after 25 years of living with HIV has, as Kendra puts it, more down than up days. She wonders whether she'll ever find a partner who will accept her diagnosis. And she always worries that someone might find out. But Kendra has also realized how strong she is. I have HIV. HIV doesn't have me. I was put here for a reason. And I haven't fully met that potential. So I'm going to keep striving for it. Kendra was born with HIV, but in most cases, the virus is transmitted sexually. And even though it's the same disease that needs the same medications and the same support, young people who acquire HIV sexually often feel the stigma even more strongly. Luke, who's 18 now, was 12 when he first had sex with a classmate. When he was 14, he saw a video about safe sex in school and decided to get tested. But when it came time to get the results... I talked to my friend and they told me, don't worry about it, you don't have it. So I did not go and get my results. Two years later, Luke donated blood and found out he was HIV positive. I walked out. My face was motionless. I was so confused. Luke says he knew unprotected sex put him at risk for HIV. He just didn't think it would happen to him. I was young. I was thinking, that's everyone else's problem, not mine. This soft-spoken teenager doesn't allow himself to think about his life before HIV, whom he may have infected before he learned of his diagnosis, or even who infected him. I just really, I've blocked that out of my head. I gotta think forward. But in the early morning quiet, Luke admits he wishes he could rewind his life. Every day. Every day I wish I can live another life. Luke has told his two best friends about his diagnosis, with everyone else, he's quiet when the subject comes up. My friend the other day, I had a rash because, like, I was at the beach. The sand was irritating me. He was like, oh, you got AIDS. He's like, oh, you got cooties. And I didn't say anything. He hasn't told a single family member. His mother works two jobs, and he didn't want to upset her with the news. That's a pain that no parent wants to know. And if I was in her shoes, that's not the words I would want to hear from my child. Besides, Luke says... Everyone has a secret they don't want anyone to know. This is his, and it's one that's easy to keep at home. My mom doesn't go to my room. I, I do my own doctor's appointments. Medicaid pays for Luke's treatment and medicines, and he hides the paperwork. He's on one pill a day and doesn't have side effects, so nothing much has changed on a day-to-day -day basis. But he has changed as a person. Luke had plans for his future before his diagnosis. No more. I don't look forward to the rest of my life. I think I'm going to die young. He sees his life now not in terms of years, but in terms of fun. So he goes out all the time with his friends. He has protected sex, but doesn't tell the girls he's with that he's HIV positive. He's determined to be optimistic. Like, you can't just think of life like it's horrible, it's hard. 
I mean, it is hard. It is horrible. When you fall down and you get right back up. You can't just sit there. <laughs> you have to get right back up. These young people are trying their best to keep getting back up. But part of the challenge they face that they can't control is whether their friends, their families and the outside world can start seeing past their illness. I'm Kavita Kadusa. One of the spots that treats many children living with HIV in the district is Children's National Medical Center. Children's is also home to a cardiac intensive care unit where doctors and nurses spend their nights performing small and sometimes large miracles, armed with compassion, a healthy dose of caffeine, and a heaping helping of medical expertise. Jonathan Wilson spent a night inside that unit where he talked with staffers and the families who are thankful for their help. With the proliferation of hospital dramas on primetime television these days, it's very easy to forget just how quiet the night shift in a hospital can be. But inside the cardiac ICU at Children's National Medical Center, the only ICU in the D.C. area focusing specifically on cardiac patients, it's often quiet and harrowing at the same time. All right. His heart is much better, but he still has some um, diastolic dysfunction. So we're just going to proceed slowly as he continues to recover. Dr. Craig Futterman is in charge tonight. Right now he's making rounds, getting and giving updates on the 16 children here tonight. He says two or three children are still unstable, requiring interventions every 20 minutes or so. But he thinks all are headed in the right direction. But he also says things can change very quickly. What I've decided over the years, I'm no longer going to be surprised by anything that can happen. I have to be ready to say, all right, I can be awake all night and I can do it. Futterman is one of seven attending doctors who rotate through this ICU. He ends up working the night shift about once a week. He's a small, energetic man who sports a closely cropped salt and pepper beard, and he likes talking about cardiology. That's a good thing for Dr. Peter Dean, the cardiology fellow on call tonight. Dean is near the bottom of the totem pole when it comes to doctors here, and one of the reasons he's here, other than to help save lives, is to learn from Dr. Futterman. Dean says the night shift can be exhausting, but it's actually the slow nights that get to him. The really the slow nights, the ones that kids aren't very sick, that's great. That's a wonderful thing, but sometimes that night drags on. It's 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m., whereas if there's a lot going on, new kids coming in, then sometimes you turn around at 7 o'clock and you're ready to go home and it goes by quickly. Tonight, one child doctors and nurses are watching closely is two-week-old Zachary Wansier. He was born five weeks premature with a congenital defect known as Tetralogy of Fallot, which affects the way blood mixes and flows in his heart. He's a day removed from corrective surgery, and his tiny body seems lost amid all the tubes and sensors surrounding him. Zachary's father, Herschel, says even though he and his wife, Dana, knew about their son's condition before he was born, the emotional peaks and valleys of the past couple of weeks have been extreme. It's a roller coaster. We're on sort of an uptick. Last night was, um, was, was sort of a downtick. He had a, he had a rough first night. Um, adapting to um, all the changes they made in his heart. 
Dana Wansier says she's actually been getting a few three-hour stretches of sleep while her son is sedated to help him heal. Once he comes out of the paralysis state and um, the sedation and he's more awake, I probably won't ever leave this room. <laughs> so I'm trying to sort of think about that and take advantage of resting now because there will be a time probably soon, perhaps by tomorrow, that that won't be happening. But while patients and their families can sometimes snatch some sleep and even doctors can occasionally lie down for a few hours, it's nurses who often literally right. keep the blood pumping here. Why don't you go now? Because I feel like I can't leave you with all this to do. Can you go? Please go. You need a break. See so yeah, ya. Just you exit. Menchi Barris is one of the charge nurses in the ICU. A native of the Philippines, she stands less than five feet tall and seems perpetually to have a disproportionately large cup of coffee at her side. Oh, yes. I can't do night shift without coffee. <laughs> Barra says she likes the night shift better. There are fewer doctors and nurses roaming the halls and a greater opportunity to focus on patients. And Barra says the sometimes quiet atmosphere means the staff needs to be even more prepared for the worst when it comes. You need to have... A strong staff, highly skilled workers to respond to whatever emergencies that um, could possibly erupt because we're it. For all the coffee they may consume, Dr. Futterman says all it takes for the doctors and nurses here to shift into high gear is a patient who needs help. Even after 25 years, and even though he's sworn off ever being surprised, a busy ICU is enough to make him a little nervous. And he says that's a good thing. Sometimes if it's a very busy unit with a lot of unstable patients, yeah, all right, I'll have a little bit of angst going into it. But I'll tell you, if it's been a very busy night and I've done my job well, it's a rush. You know, you leave the unit in the morning knowing that everybody's still alive. A bunch of them could have died but didn't because of the good work that you did. It's a great feeling. And make no mistake, even on a quiet night like this one, lives have been changed and saved in the cardiac ICU. I'm Jonathan Wilson. We return to Virginia now for a story about the past and how it's playing a major role in the present. As with any state, Virginia has been home to a number of criminal trials. And the books closed on many of these cases a while back. They would have stayed that way, too. But thanks to a forensic scientist's unusual work habits and a convicted felon's quest to clear his name, Virginia is now scouring old DNA evidence for judicial errors. Over the past decade, the massive review has uncovered at least 10 wrongful convictions. And according to a recent study of the data, more exonerations could be forthcoming, along with more information on the true rate of wrongful convictions. Jacob Fenston has the story. Back in the 70s and 80s, before the advent of DNA testing, forensic science was limited to things like testing blood stains to see if they match the blood type of a suspect. Is this type A blood? Is this type B? Kelly Walsh is with the Urban Institute's Justice Policy Center. She says one of the analysts in Virginia whose job it was to do this testing, well, she had a peculiar habit. She would take swabbings or clippings from the original evidence and tape them to her files. The tip of a Q-tip from a rape kit or the tiny corner of a stained sheet. Now, this was not standard procedure, and this analyst, her name was Mary Jane Burton, she wasn't thinking ahead, planning for the day when DNA testing would be invented. 
She just liked to keep these little bits of evidence as a prop to hold up in court and tell the jury, This is what I tested. When Burton passed away in 1999, she left behind this secret archive of evidence. The DNA of thousands of convicted offenders was hidden away in storage. During the trial, basically I remember is that she had notes in front of her. In 1982, Marvin Anderson was on trial for a rape that had occurred earlier that year in rural Hanover County, Virginia. It was the summer before his senior year of high school when his life took this abrupt turn. One Tuesday, he went into work at his summer job and got called into the office. No reason why, just, you know, come to the office. And when I arrived at the office, there was two officers from Hanover County and the Ashton Sheriff's Department standing there waiting on me. Anderson had no criminal record, but he was identified by photo and then in a lineup. From that moment, when I was standing in Hanover Jail, I knew I was going to prison. Automatic, straight from the bat, I knew I was going. Whether I did the crime or didn't do the crime, I knew I was going to prison. He was put away at age 18 and wouldn't get out of prison for 15 years. When DNA technology came along, he wanted his evidence tested. But his lawyer at the Innocence Project in New York kept getting the same answer from the state crime lab. We don't save evidence. We send it back to the submitting agency. Sean Armbrist with the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project says the students working on Anderson's case were so convinced he was innocent they wouldn't take no for an answer. Can you just look? You know, these students won't leave me alone. In 2001, the Virginia Department of Forensic Science finally pulled Anderson's file out of storage. Oh, wow. There's evidence here. Taped inside were the Q-tips from 1982, little snippings of evidence Mary Jane Burton had saved. In 2002, then-Governor Mark Warner pardoned Anderson, officially exonerating him of the crime that took place 20 years earlier. What struck me, not just with Mr. Anderson but a few other folks, was it how little malice they bore, how little bitterness they had. Anderson was the first, but over the next two years, four more men were exonerated by the evidence Mary Jane Burton had saved. Yeah, I was very surprised. So in 2005, Warner ordered the state to test every case where evidence had been retained. The Department of Forensic Science began sifting through more than half a million case files. Kelly Walsh with the Urban Institute says this test-them-all approach created a totally unique set of data. What Virginia did is take the traditional methods of looking for wrongful convictions and turn it on its head. In June, the Urban Institute released a report finding the evidence in Virginia supported exoneration in 38 cases. If you do the math and subtract the cases where the DNA was too corrupted to provide any answers, the report suggests a possible wrongful conviction rate of 8% in murder cases and 15% in sexual assault cases. But Walsh says those numbers come with caveats and further study is needed. Even if reality is half of this, even if reality is closer to 4% or 7.5%, that's still much, much higher than any previous estimate from other research. But Virginia's DNA testing project has been mired in criticism throughout. Sean Armbrust with the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project says in the early years, the state was extremely secretive about the whole project. I think a lot of the issue is that the project was so overwhelming, and it was given to the state crime laboratory itself, and they're good at science, but it was hard for them to sort of conceive of and come up with a plan that made sense for the criminal justice system as a whole. For example, the Commonwealth's clunky process of tracking down convicts who could possibly be exonerated by DNA. In the beginning, the state would simply mail a letter to the convict's last known address. Basically what it's saying is, we're the government, we're here to help, contact us if you need us. And this is being sent to people 
who have been wrongfully convicted by the government. John Sheldon, a criminal defense lawyer in Fairfax, is one of several attorneys who volunteered to help the Commonwealth track people down. Now Sheldon is moving on to the next batch of 60-something names. Statistically, from our past experience, there should be a couple of these guys who are innocent. Altogether, the state has to track down more than 1,000 offenders from the 70s and 80s. So far, several hundred have been found. Finding the rest could take months or years. I'm Jacob Fenston. After the break, D.C.'s first ladies of basketball. They were like bouncing the ball off each other and just pow, slam dunking it. And it was like, (gasps) I'm in love. That story and more coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. Today we're looking back at the year that was and bringing you some of our favorite stories from the past 12 months. This next story in our year in review comes from our Up All Night edition of the show back in June. In case you missed it, oh, it was a ton of fun. We chowed down at an all-night diner. We chatted up night owl tourists on the National Mall. And we searched for the sorts of creatures that prowl our urban landscape long after the sun goes down. Among those creatures, feral cats. Genetically, they're like a house cat, but they're born in the wild. And as Sabri Benashore tells us, trying to get a handle on these felines keeps a very particular group of individuals up all night and well into the morning. In an alley off of 10th Street Northeast, old grapevines, garbage cans, and chain link fences are all the same yellow hue under the harsh glow of street lamps. It's four in the morning. Amanda Novotny is unloading her station wagon. So these are humane box traps. Novotny is with Alley Cat Allies. She's trapping feral cats. So when the cats um, enter the trap, they have to go all the way to the back um, to get the food, and they step on a trip plate, which makes the door close behind them. There are at least 13 feral cats, including five kittens, that live in this alley. Well, I could show you the damage they've done to my car. Pat Gillum is a neighbor. She watches the scene from her balcony. These cats are too wild. They keep mating, and when they mate, it's a bunch of ruckus. You know that. And then the babies come, they get aggressive because of the kittens, and they attack my dog and me. Amanda Novotny and another neighbor, Kathy Sinziger, walk up to a back porch full of cats and set out the traps. The black and white one on the steps is the grandma cat who's been the sentry. Smelling around the front of the cage, the trap. She's thinking about it. Thinking about it, but like typical cats, Grandma is unimpressed. We all have a bet that the black and white one would never be caught because she's smart. After a half hour, one of the mothers takes the bait. She isn't happy. Not at all. But these cats aren't being taken away, at least not for long. They're just taking a trip to the vet, says Novotny. So male cats are neutered, female cats are spayed. They're giving their, their babies vaccination. Their left ear, the very tip of that, is removed. So the ear tip is a uni- universal sign that lets people know that that cat has already undergone spay-neuter surgery. Um, and we will pick them up tomorrow morning and release them tomorrow afternoon. 
This is called trap neuter release, or TNR. Fix the cats and put them back. Novotny says after getting fixed, they won't be as aggressive, won't howl, won't fight, and most importantly, won't reproduce. Still, having the cats back doesn't thrill Gillum. I just don't think they should be able to run loose like this. The alternative, though, is for the cats to be put down. Feral adult cats taken to a shelter will get euthanized because they're unadoptable. So I do not want any animal euthanized at all. Um, I just wish they had a home, but they're too wild to have a home, aren't they? No, bring them back. <laughs> no, bring them back. As she speaks, the colony's matriarch finally takes notice of the trap. Mama's going in there. We got Mama. (laughs) Yeah, because Mama is the ringleader, okay? Now, trap neuter return has its detractors. There is no reason to believe it works. Robert Johns is with the American Bird Conservancy. The University of Nebraska did an exhaustive literature search on this issue. And they could not find a single legitimate case where TNR actually eliminated a, uh, a cat colony. And, he points out, cats are predators. When you save a cat by putting it in a, a colony, what in fact you're doing is killing a handful of wildlife every year. He claims 500 million birds and other small creatures are killed by cats every year. TNR advocates point to numerous anecdotal cases where the practice has worked, including at sites in D.C. And Fairfax County says the strategy has reduced the number of feral kittens brought into its shelters by almost 60 percent. Back on 10th Street, with almost all of the adult cats and traps, Novotny has just pulled two kittens out of a drain pipe. These kittens are young enough to be socialized. Unlike most of the cats born on the streets of D.C., they are now looking for a home. I'm Sabri Benashore. You can find photos, tips on deterring feral cats, and information on how to adopt kittens on our website, metroconnection.org. We'll stay in D.C. for this next story, but we're going to move south to Berry Farms, where neighbors are coming together over alley-oops, slam dunks, and fast breaks. The Goodman League consists of about 18 basketball teams that play from June to September. The league draws fans from all over the area, and at most games right in the front row, you'll find a few devoted fans known as the First Ladies. Shauna McCone and Emily Berman caught up with several of the ladies, Denise Reeves and sisters Tangi and Taya Travers, back in July as they got ready for a big game. So these are shoes. See, they have all these gold shingles and chains, and you see the design there, and they're so comfortable. It's nothing like, oh, one thing that, that can be challenging is you don't wear heels to the game. I mean, it's just a no-no. The girls who do it, you know they're not regulars. You know they're there to kind of flaunt around. It's a basketball game. Just going to do my makeup and get all ready. Yeah, so I'm going to go with a neutral eye today. Games can have a, take a toll on your relationship. Right now, we're going through a tough breakup. So anyway, last summer, 
I kind of like put him on a pedestal, you could almost say, and I have missed a lot of my games. And this summer, I decided <laughs> that I wasn't gonna do that. Ultimately, it was just like, look, maybe we can pick this back up in the winter. <laughs> Hello, there's my sister. A first lady means that we have been coming down there for one for years. So we kind of earned this title. Your whole own little world. <laughs> it makes you feel like, you know, you're expected. Your presence is wanted and expected. Hey, D. So she's the original first lady. You can hear she has a raspy voice. This is what we do. We're going to be there. You're going to see us on the front line. When I first went there, I, of course, we didn't have our designated section. I was sitting in the bleachers like with everybody else. I was about 19, 20. It was a social thing for me. The first, <laughs> very first time, it was like, wow, all these people in one place having all this fun. But then one day, I won't forget, pow, slam dunking it. To be up close, live and personal, and see somebody jump that high off the ground, it was just like, <gasps> I'm in love. I'm First ladies and the Goodman girls, they are stars in the game. I want my goddamn go royalty. Hey, nephew. It's Chucky. Hey, ladies. So you see now what we're doing now is we're making room. Sometimes people be in our spot, but you see they quickly have to, you know, things have to get rearranged. Nine seconds in the half. My name is Clarence Lindsay, and my name on the basketball court is Showtime. I am the oldest one in the league. I'm at 47, but I feel like I'm 18. And uh, when I get out there on that floor, I feed off my fans. And when you come to see me play, I give you what you're looking for. Stopping pop, second half underway, over the top. So Miles is the guy over here on the mic. He's following the game. He's the commentator. He's the comedian. He's the CEO. He does it all. So right now he's sitting half court directly across from where we sit. So we can go over and say hi to him if you like. I mean, I can look in one section and tell you what these guys will be beefing with each other. And for the three hours or four hours, however long we're in here, all of that is squashed. And they watch basketball and go home and we come back and we do it again. That's, that's the best part. We love all the players, but then there's ones that don't give us their all. Yeah, we, we, we talk about the kids, the family, but that's how we got to get them excited, get them riled up. It's street ball, so we got to get them street talk. I mean, like, hey, we come out, get out there and run. The court that we're playing on now is like a full NBA Nike-style court. We used to play on hard concrete with chains or no nets, you know, like it came so far and you got to give your thanks to Miles because if he ever had given up on this league, it wouldn't be where it is today. Everybody's showing us love and we get that love because of the commitment. I know I feel special. I, like I have a special place in the gates. We all do. That's our song. This is the theme song. Inside the gates, inside the gates. It's about to go down. Yeah, I can For more on the Goodman League, as well as pictures of the First Ladies, visit our website, MetroConnection.org. They're playing basketball. We love
And that's Metro Connection for this week and for this year. <laughs> we heard from WAMU's Emily Berman, Kavitha Cardoza, Jonathan Wilson, Sabri Benashore, and Jacob Fenston, along with reporter Jana McCone. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Rachel Schuster. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can see all the music we use on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story, and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on metroconnection.org, you can find our Twitter and Facebook links. You can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. To hear our most recent episodes, click the podcast link or find us on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when we'll gear up for those New Year's resolutions with a show on health and wellness. We'll revisit some of our favorite health-minded stories from the past year, like the dancer who's battled major physical issues, the Georgetown Pharmacy that's celebrating its 100th year of business, and the unstoppable D.C. Sled Sharks, a hockey team for kids with disabilities. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News. And have a happy new year.